Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I'm Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. On today's pod, we'll talk about why President Biden's visit to Vietnam was such a big deal for American companies. And if you're a millionaire or a hedge fund that isn't paying your taxes, the IRS is coming after you. Then the biggest antitrust trial of the modern internet era kicks off tomorrow. And after 10 weeks of arguments, we could end up with a very different looking Google. Plus, we'll tell you all about the surprising resource powering the AI boom. It's Monday, September 11th. Let's ride. Neil, I'm feeling especially excited this morning because we are going to meet some Morning Brew Daily listeners face to face today. I'm, of course, talking about the live screening of Dumb Money we're hosting at 6 p.m. in New York. What are you most looking forward to? Well, I've been practicing my handshake. <laughs> I got a really good firm grip going now. No, I'm, look, I'm most looking forward to hearing people's misconceptions. <laughs> about like, us? oh, oh, I thought you were taller. Oh, oh I thought no. you'd be put a little bit, a little bit more put together. <laughs> What about you? I'm I'm most excited, yeah, just to see it face to face. It, I it's always the funny thing of when you see the amount of listeners on a page, it doesn't mean anything. But when then you see a room full of them, you're like, whoa, a lot of people listen. So I'm looking forward to getting context for how many people are actually tuning in, um, and just some logistics for the people who are coming to the event. I wish the theater could fit everyone, yeah. but this one's mostly for New York City-based listeners. Um, the event starts at 6 p.m. at Regal Union Square, located at 850 Broadway. We recommend showing up a little bit early, especially if you have a standby ticket to help ensure you get a seat. Also, we'll be hanging out and we'll be, uh, yeah, you can you can judge Neil's handshake on a scale of, of, of one to ten. Um, I could also give hugs. Yeah, okay. There you go. Okay, Neil, let's dive into our top story of the day where the biggest monopoly trial since the days of Bill Gates and Microsoft kicks off tomorrow. It's Google on the hot seat this time as the U.S. government is taking on the Silicon Valley behemoth over anti-competitive behavior. At the heart of the trial is the fact that Google controls 90% of the search engine market. That screams monopoly already, but what the Department of Justice case is zooming in on is that hardware companies like Apple make Google the default search engine on all their devices. And it has a point. Default options are super powerful. One exec at a competing search engine, DuckDuckGo, said an Android smartphone users would need to take 15 steps to select DuckDuckGo as the phone's default search engine. But Google will likely fire back by saying, yes, we're the default, but you can change your settings to another search engine. So how are you going to call us a monopoly? Whichever way it swings, the case is going to be massive. The DOJ and Google have already deposed more than 150 people and produced more than 5 million pages of documents. Neil, this is the first monopoly trial of the modern internet area. 
What are, what are you lo most looking forward to? Well, you just read so much about uh, antitrust trials in history. The IBM one in the 70s was so big. And I know, you know, growing up, you hear a lot about uh, the Microsoft one mm -hmm. in, in that started in 1998. And they all seem to be part of a broader technological innovation that's sweeping computing. So, you know, the IBM one was from mainframe to PC. And then the Microsoft one was at the precipice of uh, the advent of the Internet. And now this one is it seems like it's coming at the beginning of the dawn of AI. So like using this as a as a way to look forward for for what's going to happen in the in the tech industry in the future seems to be super interesting because it could shake up the power dynamics in Silicon Valley because right now we have, you know, the five fang companies or you know, Amazon Meta, Microsoft, Google, all the ones that have kind of become dominant in the past 20 years and this new AI wave has the potential to shake up uh, the way the power balance shakes out there. So we'll see whether uh, the DOJ can handicap Google enough to, uh, you know, maybe open the open path for new players to come in. Yeah, that's kind of what Google is is harping on, though, is that this trial is backwards looking while they're saying, yes, we're looking forward to AI. So they're kind of saying, like, guys, we're moving on past, like, search engine monopolies at this point. Obviously, this is what Google is saying. But it is interesting. Google's defense does kind of center on the fact that they're just saying that people use Google because they like Google, not because of any anti-competitive practices. They say that it's just a superior product. And so, and the fact that you can change your just default search engine on these devices, that's kind of what Google's defense will, will center on. Even though it is, we know default options are extremely, yeah. extremely powerful because it's much harder to opt out of something than it is to opt into something. So there's definitely cases to be made on both sides that this, this particular thing of Google preloading their search engine on all these hardware devices. There's definitely arguments on both sides. And they have the resources to spend because Google spends, pays Apple billions of dollars so that on the iPhone you have, uh, you know, Google at search as the default option. But either way, uh, this trial, whatever happens at the end of this trial, it could sort of uh, handicap Google because if you look back to the big antitrust trials that we've talked about, IBM and Microsoft, both IBM and Microsoft did okay at the end, like they didn't have to break up or anything, but there's this phenomenon called policeman at the elbow, which was coined by Tim Wu, and it's the idea that you're always going to be looking over your shoulder at regulators after something like this. It's hugely distracting, it's hugely costly, and it could hamper your innovation going forward because you're always just kind of like, all right, what, yeah, well, uh, you know, am I, doing, am I doing okay? Am I going to have to go to trial again? What's going on? So, no experts predict that Google will actually get broken up over this, but they're saying it could have long-term, uh, you know, long-term consequences for its growth potential. It would be so wild to see Google did actually get broken up, though, like where you have to segment Android, Google Maps, Google search business. <laughs> they won't do it. It's too, yeah. Google search is too infused into every single right. one of its product that it's just not possible to break it up. But in 1984, maybe the last time that a huge tech company was broken up was AT&T mm -hmm. uh, into seven different telecom company, regional telecom companies. And there is a, so much discussion in the business literature about how this impacted things, whether, uh, you know, it was great for competition in the telephone services market, but also it hampered innovation at Bell Labs, uh, which was which was critical for some of the biggest innovations we know today. So over the next 10 yeah. weeks, we'll see. Whatever way it shakes out, we're going to get 10 weeks of content after out of this. <laughs> so it, it's a win for us. Yeah. It is a win. All right. Pre President Biden is on his way home from the G20 summit in India, but he's making a couple of pit stops first, including his first ever trip to Vietnam yesterday. 
You might think that the U.S. isn't the best of friends with Vietnam, given our brutal war there 50 years ago, and that was the case for many decades. But recently, our relationship has warmed, and Biden sees Vietnam as a crucial geopolitical and business partner in Southeast Asia to counter China's growing influence in the region. While Biden was in the country, Vietnam upgraded its relations to the U.S. with the U.S. to its highest level it maintains with only four other countries. And most relevant to us on this business podcast is Vietnam's emergence as a a manufacturing hub. American multinationals have made products in China for years, but with the U.S.'s relationship with Beijing hitting Joe Jonas, Sophie Turner levels, many companies are looking for other options. And Vietnam, with its cheaper labor, has become a hot destination. Apple, Nike, Microsoft, Dell, Google are just some of the big American companies that are entering Vietnam or expanding, expanding their operations there. And just overall, trade, with, uh, trade between Vietnam and the U.S. has doubled in just the past five years. So this is becoming an increasingly important friendship for Biden to nurture. Yeah, Vietnam checks a lot of boxes right now for the U.S. in terms of the current geopolitical landscape. One, they're one of the only countries in the region that also has some of the same misgivings about China and about the national security side of things. So that's a big checkbox for, for uh, the U.S. And then also from an economic perspective, they're one of the few places that you can actually scale up that manufacturing to meet these huge multinational companies, these huge U.S. Mm -hmm. companies demand. So again, it is kind of like this perfect perfect storm or like perfect, uh, I don't know, Goldilocks place for, for the U.S. And they're taking things slow out of the gate. Like this is mostly a symbolic relationship at the current time because, again, like China is still such a big player in the region that Vietnam doesn't want to piss off Beijing too much. Right. So it is like there's no like lower tariffs or anything like that right now, but it is a, a big symbolic step forward. Right. The four other countries that the Vietnam has the uh, has this highest level of relationship, I should mention, are two of them them are Russia and China. So, you know, uh, Vietnam definitely has uh, a good, good relations with Beijing and Moscow, which the U.S. would ideally not like. But when you look at what is made in Vietnam over the past couple of years, it's quite interesting. Apple shifted its AirPod uh, production to Vietnam. So your AirPods are made there. Google makes some of its Pixel there. And then Microsoft makes Xbox and Fire T and Amazon makes Fire TV in India and Vietnam. So this is becoming a pretty big electronics hub. Foxconn, Apple's biggest supplier, spending $300 million opening a plant there. And it also has Samsung's biggest plant, uh, Samsung being the South Korean electronics giant, uh, because labor is really cheap there. Mm -hmm. so Foxconn put up a uh, an advertisement to hire 5,000 workers, and it, they're at $300 in monthly pay, which is less than half of what they'd do, what they'd get in Shenzhen, China. So you can see why a bunch of the uh, American companies are like, yeah, I could probably hire five to 6,000 people here to work at a factory and it, it won't break the bank. So yeah, Vietnam, Vietnam does not have a great human rights record, which is something we can talk about. Uh, so that is another thing that, uh, you know, the U.S. Is, is a little concerned about, but obviously Biden went there uh, that he's, he's perfectly fine with uh, strengthening his friendship because countering China is more important. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of the, the strategy in the region for sure. Like we've expanded U.S. military bases in Philippines. We've agreed to jointly produce jet engines in India. So it definitely is this new focus on how can we diversify away from, from China in that region. All right, Neil, let's move on to our next story. When you think about the core of the AI boom, I'm sure Silicon Valley and big tech companies come to mind. You probably don't think about Iowa and water. But it turns out without the cornfields of Iowa and, and a whole bunch of H2O, we probably wouldn't have the chat GBT we know today. 
Microsoft has been using massive data centers cooled by water in the small town of West Des Moines to train its large language models. Remember, to train a model like ChatGPT, chat it requires a ton of computing power to analyze massive troves of text. All that computing takes a lot of electricity, which in turn generates a lot of heat. So in order to, order to keep a data center cool, you need to pump in lots of water to keep things up and running. And big tech is thirsty. In its latest environmental report, Microsoft said its global water consumption jumped 34% from 2021 to 2022 to nearly 1.7 billion gallons a year, mainly due to its AI research. Google also reported a 20% growth in water use in the same period. Neil, I feel like this is one aspect of the AI boom that people are just overlooking. Just how much yeah, water is about it. constraining resource. I didn't think about it until I read this article. <laughs> I was like, whoa, damn. Like, ChatGPT was chained in, uh, in Iowa and it requires uh, gallons of water. Uh, but I don't know. If you, like, look at your computer, you have 30 tabs open. You get that fan starts going. It heats up. You're like, I wish I had some water to cool this. Well, imagine, I, I never think that, but <laughs> imagine if you had that going at, you know, an exponential rate. Uh, and when the when the temperature gets over 85 degrees in Iowa, they need to bring in water. So it's really interesting to see. This is the next phase of the water wars. Whenever you think of water constraints, obviously the first thing you think of is agriculture. But with so many data centers being built out to support the internet and AI infrastructure, then this is becoming a crucial crucial resource to have. Also, where are these data centers going? It's not in you know the the most rainfall intensive places it's in uh desert areas like in arizona which themselves are uh you know already going through major droughts and so there you've seen a lot of battles at the local level with residents and pushing back against you know microsoft and google building data centers because they're like uh we need w drinking water we need water for our, our crops and these things come in and guzzle up so much water like in one area, in one town in where Google's going in, in Oregon, it consumes more than a quarter of all water there. I, if I was Microsoft or Google, I would never put a data center in Arizona or of, of all places because it's so hot. And one of the big reasons why people like Microsoft and Google are drawn to Iowa is because for most of the year, the air outside is cold enough that it will cool down the data centers. So there's no difference in terms of how the, how the training occurs, whether it's in Iowa or it's in yeah. uh, Arizona. It's just the difference of how much you need to cool these data centers down. So why aren't we putting them in like I'll tell you why. Canada. I know exactly why. Okay, tell me. Because they're the the places they're putting their data centers in have uh, are more geared toward renewable energy. So it lowers their carbon footprint because they have these targets to hit. It's so so those are the areas where they're putting it in, where they're powered by solar and wind farm, more so than in the nor Northeast where maybe it rains more, mm -hmm. but uh, they're not sort of lowering their bottom line carbon footprint. So that's why they're putting it there. It is interesting, too, to see this playing out just across kind of industrialization across the world because Tesla is facing a similar headwind at their Giga Berlin factory where a bunch of local residents are saying, wow, Tesla, you use a lot of water. Their, their water usage could uh, water uh, provide the same amount of water for a city of mo more than 30,000 people. And so the the local residents are going like all right Elon like we love the jobs you brought to the region but like please stop using as much water as you're using because it is a drought stricken region so you'll we're going to see this tension more and more going forward but it was interesting to kind of zoom in on West Des Moines Iowa as kind of this AI hotspot and also kind of the center of the the burgeoning water wars all right Neil before we jump into our next story we're going to take a quick break 
We are back to talk about everyone's favorite government agency, the IRS. The IRS received $80 billion in funding from last year's Inflation Reduction Act, and it wants to show us all it's putting it to good use. So on Friday, it announced a few initiatives that aim to claw back more revenue from wealthy people and companies who have been less than honest when filing out their TurboTax form. There are two prongs to this project. One is setting dozens of revenue officers loose on 1,600 millionaires who owe at least $250,000 in taxes each. The other is using AI to identify 75 large businesses partnerships, which average $10 billion in assets and include hedge funds and real estate firms that have been using shady accounting tactics to avoid paying what they owe in taxes. This is all about proving to Congress that the IRS deserves this fresh funding ahead of negotiations this month. Lawmakers are haggling over a spending bill to prevent a government shutdown by October 1st. Democrats want to keep the IRS flush, but Republicans want to shrink its budget. So this is the IRS saying like, yo, we're, pe we're putting this money to good use. Keep, keep our funding, please. What I thought was interesting that what the IRS commissioner specifically called out that it is using AI tools, which I know that they, he was trained to say like, oh yeah, we're definitely using these new AI tools. But it is interesting to me that you can train an AI tool to recognize patterns, to recognize trends in tax evasion. You think it's such a case-by-case -case basis, but I guess these companies yeah. are kind of using the same practices and certain red flags pop up that you can identify using AI. So just another AI use case that I didn't think we'd be talking no, about. No, it, it, it does seem like it's effective. And he said previously with our with our budget, we just could not afford uh, to, to, we couldn't afford this kind of technology. And, you know, overall audit rates at the IRS, which has been hemorrhaging employees, uh, has dropped precipitously. So the number of people with incomes of, of 1 million or more has jumped 50% over the last decades, while the number of audits on million dollar tax returns has fallen by two thirds. Meanwhile, customer service was abysmal. The average phone call to the IRS took 24 minutes, uh, 27 minutes, I'm sorry. And now thanks to this, this $80 billion in funding, it seems like they're kind of hiring more, getting things back on track. The, the average phone call fell to just four minutes. Blissful. <laughs> I mean, it's faster bad. than most airlines, yeah. honestly. And so, uh, and they're ramping up their auditing here to get some more revenue for the government. So this is the IRS saying we are, we are really, Thank you for this funding. We want to show you that we are being productive with it. Don't take it away. Republicans, on, meanwhile, are like, you know, they've been against funding the IRS from the beginning. They're saying you're going to go after middle class people. You're going to go after small businesses and hamper growth there. You know, like, just like we talked about the policeman at the elbow. Everyone's going to be looking at over their over their shoulder for IRS agents. Um, so you have this little uh partisan uh, bickering happening. Yeah, it definitely seems like Democrats are hanging their hat on the fact that the top 1% consistently underreport their earnings and are just not yeah, audited as, as frequently as they once were, while Republicans are hanging their hat on the fact that this is just an excuse for the IRS to hire a ton of agents and then audit America kind of at scale. So you're definitely seeing kind of the, the partisan um, I don't know, heebie-jeebies come out on, on, on both sides. So it is interesting. And yeah, and caught in the middle is the IRS just saying, we just want more people. Like, yeah. please, like, let us hire more agents so we can do our job effectively. So I don't know. They, they are saying that it's been working so far in yeah. July. IRS said it collected $38 million in delinquent taxes from more than 175 high-income taxpayers. It's not a ton of money, but it's not nothing at the same time. It's all relative. So, right, exactly. And they also said, uh, in response to Republicans' concerns, they said that we're not going after anybody whose incomes are lower than $400,000. Yeah. Okay, Neil, it's 
Monday. So let's move on to our winners of the weekend segment where we bring you two stories from the news that feature someone or something that had an especially good weekend. Neil, you won the pre-show chili cook-off. So you're up first. Who's your winner of the weekend? Secret ingredient, <laughs> cinnamon. My winner is the opposition party in New Zealand. And you're probably thinking, why is Neil's winner the opposition party in New Zealand? So I will tell you, rugby. But now you're probably wondering, what does rugby have to do with New Zealand politics? It will all be revealed. So the Rugby World Cup started in France, and the New Zealand All Blacks team lost to France in their first game. And Kiwis are absolutely mad about rugby. The All Blacks are everything to them, and their success is considered to impact the overall national mood. So Bloomberg found this pattern between the All Blacks performance at the World Cup and the performance of the incumbent government in election years when the tournament is happening. This is not peer-reviewed research, but when the All Blacks won the World Cup in 1987 and 2011, the incumbent government was re-elected shortly after. But when the team lost in the semifinal in 1999, the government was booted for the other party. So New Zealand Prime Minister Chris Hipkins and the rest of his Labour Party better hope the All Blacks turn things around because there is an election next month. I love these stats. I love these like not really correlated, but correlated sports to politics or sports to economic indicators. I remember uh, uh, like a year or so ago, the Phillies were in the World Cup and the Morton Brew uh, in the World Series found that anytime the Phillies won a World Series, the U.S. enters a recession, so like 2008, 1980. So it is funny to me that there is something like this for New Zealand politics. And I also love this move from the Australian rugby coach a few months ago. They were playing New Zealand, and he literally brought this up and said, "Like, man, I'd be nervous if I was <laughs> if I was um, the the rugby team because if the rugby team loses, the whole country sinks." He was literally calling into question this relationship between yeah. how the rugby team does and how like the the national mood is. He says. He says it's not just rugby that sinks the country sinks the whole economy goes down the prime minister is there with his fingers crossed hoping the all blacks win because he knows the economy is going to drop if they lose i don't know if that's uh scientifically backed up but, but new zealand people they do love their all blacks they love their rugby all right neil my winner of the weekend is myself that's right. The curse of the inverse Toby is finally over. Now, for some background, I make a fair amount of predictions on this show, most of them sports related. And so far, every single one of them has failed to come to fruition. I said the U.S. women would win the World Cup. They did not. I said Trinity Rodman would be the breakout player of the tournament. She didn't score a goal. I said Jessica Bagula would win the U.S. Open. She lost in the round of 16. I could go on and on, but finally the curse has been lifted because I predicted on air that Novak Djokovic would win the men's side and lo and behold the Joker did wow. it. So yes Neil, I am my own winner of the weekend but also let's just talk about the US Open for a little bit. Even though Djokovic winning was cool, my highlight was probably watching Coco Goff win the title, especially on the 50th anniversary of the US Open celebrating equal pay for men and women. Very cool. Yeah, it was. I, we really went out on a limb there with Djokovic. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. To be fair. He was I, a real underdog. I was saying like, I think Alcaraz isn't going to get it done. So I, it was a little bit of a contrarian take, but also I did say that he would beat Alcaraz in the final. So if you really wanted to get nitpicky, the inverse Toby still lives a little bit. I can't believe Coco won. I, she was down 6-0 in the first set. I was like, well, it's over. I was thinking, should I put some money on Coco? But uh. it was, it was awesome. Like she like broke down and cried. I was crying too. Like when, whenever they go and hug their parents, yeah. that just gets me. And it was really cool to see Billie Jean King too, like hand her the trophy, hand her the check. And it was just a cool, cool 
cool moment. Overall. Probably the first of many majors for her. She's oh, yeah. playing really well. All right, let's preview the week ahead. It is extremely busy. There's going to be a lot of content for us, <laughs> Toby. Let's go. All right. Uh, the huge auto worker strike we've been mentioning for weeks might finally happen. On Friday, production at the Big Three Detroit automakers could come screeching to a halt if a new contract between the companies and the United Auto Workers Union isn't finalized by an 11.59 p.m. Thursday deadline. The economic impacts could be really big. Just a 10-day strike would cost billions and likely send Michigan into a recession, according to the Anderson Economic Group. It is the New Zealand All Blacks is the Detroit Automakers Big Three. For Michigan, especially. For Michigan, yeah. All right, tomorrow the iPhone 15 is coming at its big hardware event. Tomorrow, Apple is expected to announce the iPhone 15 and four new models, as has been typical. The release comes at a precarious time for Apple in China, where, as we talked about on Friday, the government expanded its ban on the use of iPhones, and rival Chinese smartphone maker Huawei shocked the world with its souped-up phone that could dent sales in Apple's biggest overseas market. So this is a really big moment for Apple. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering how big they're going to kind of blow it up to be. I think they just want to kind of convey business as usual, actually, and just say, like, we are still innovating. We're still Apple. So I don't think they're going to try to make it anything bigger than it normally is. But I am I'm act gonna, like you've been there before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Uh, also, Elon Musk hits bookstores, not the man, the book. <laughs> Walter Isaacson's biography of the billionaire will be released tomorrow. And if you're in a book club this fall, I would bet it will be on your reading list. The book has already created so much news in the weeks leading up to its release. It's been a masterclass in generating buzz. Not it's not I've been here before. It's like this book is going to be freaking juicy. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it a bunch. I also did see the discourse start yesterday of because I saw the, the cover was released release too and it's Elon Musk trying to do like the famous Steve Jobs pose like he has his hands under his chin like that and everyone's saying like listen dude you're not Steve Jobs and also there was some discourse about like his full head of hair too and oh. saying like oh my so there's there's discourse around all parts of this book so we're talking discourse about central it. all right everything else we got Aaron Rodgers making his debut for the Jets tonight but Spectrum and Disney still have not resolved their dispute so it could be blacked out for a lot of Jets fans MTV Video Music Awards also known as the VMAs, are tomorrow night. Uh, we got Oktoberfest starting on Saturday in Munich. Rosh Hashanah begins Friday night. I'll teach you how to tell everybody a Shana Tova. Uh, thank you. I, I was going to try to say it, but you said it. Good but Can I hear you? Shana Tova. Shana Tova. If you want to throw in a little extra, umituka means and sweet. Listen, just uh, I'm, I'm baby steps here. <laughs> baby steps. Yeah. All right, and maybe they'll find uh, this week the murderer who escaped from prison in Pennsylvania, though I doubt it. That guy's been on the loose for 11 days. Crazy. Yeah, he crab-whopped out, out of the prison. It's the craziest video I've ever seen. That's our show for today. Have a great start to the week, and we'll see many of you later tonight. If you have thoughts on the show, especially if they are nice, write into Morning Brew Daily at morningbrew.com. Let's roll the credits. Samantha Velez is our editor and producer. Uber Batista and Raymond Liu are associate producers. Isabel Wynn is our technical director. Billy Menino is on audio. Hair and makeup is camped outside Barnes & Noble ahead of the Elon Musk book release. Might be a little aggressive. This isn't Harry Potter 7. Devin Emery is our chief content officer, and our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back tomorrow.